Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 148, Defining Stress and Success. Hello and welcome. I am your host, Lori Krieg, and my husband, Matt, sadly is not able to be here today. But we do still have that most professional radio voice among us. You already heard him. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know when you say anything else, Steve? Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Hi. Uh, Guys, but did you know that you could not only hear Steve's voice, but you could see his face and mine and that of our guest on our Vimeo and YouTube channel. Just look for me, my name, Lori Krieg, all the vowels, lots of I's and E's. But you could see our guest today, which who is that? That is John Mark Comer. John Mark, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And Steve, I, not not to get talking already, but you do have a masterful radio oh, voice. So thank you. Well done. That was my first time on the podcast. And I was thinking, wow, that is like professional level. <laughs> you know it. This is a reason that we've chosen him and for many, many others. Uh, but those of you who do not know John Mark, which when I was throwing out the question of the week to you all, which we'll get to in a hot second, you guys were so stoked for this guy to be on here. But if you don't know him, he lives, works and writes in the urban core of Portland, Oregon with his wife, Tammy, and their three children. He is the pastor for teaching and vision at Bridgetown Church and has a master's degree in biblical and theological studies from Western Seminary. John Mark is also the author of the book we'll be exploring today. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World. And he also wrote Loveology, which many of you responded as one of the most influential books in your life, which it happens to be the question of the week for this week. So, John Mark, I mean, you could pick your own book, but you don't have to pick your own book. Uh, But what, besides the Bible, is uh, the most influential book on your life? Oh, like in general. In like general. One book. I know. And you oh. cite in this book I've been reading over the last few days that you are a reader. So good luck to you, sir. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, I don't really think that way as far as like the, you know, top three books or top 10 or whatever. But um, gosh, if I had to nail it down to one book, most likely the spirit of the disciplines by Dallas Willard. Oh yeah. I mean, Dallas Willard, you talk about him Mm -hmm. and his influence indirectly on your life. And yeah. And and if you're, if if you're new to Dallas, don't start there. That's, you know, um, a couple of, yeah, there are, there are easier places to start. He's, he's not (laughs) making it easy on you as a reader with that one, but it's uh, I think it took me two or three reads to even get what he was saying. But it has it has sunk pretty deep at this point. I love it. Steve Odell, um, which listener response stood out to you and why did it? I really appreciated what uh, Mandy said. Ruthless Trust by Brennan Manning. Um, Mm -hmm. And then she said more recently, Unoffendable by Brant Hansen. Um, She said basically the same message in two different packages. Um, And interestingly, I know kind of sort of ish no Brant Hansen because he's got a radio uh, background as well and um, I got his book my wife read it and she said it was really good so I, I trust her opinion on that Steve and I were trying to get into like the if your spouse reads the book do you also read the book how much does it count toward your bookshelf uh 
Hey, you guys, if you want to answer the question of the week from last week, you got to find me on the old Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, but you guys responded. And this one I got from Instagram on my stories on the questions. Uh, and I appreciate it from Annie. A book that has been really influential in my life is called The Gift of Being Yourself by David G. Benner. I've read it at least five or six times and will keep coming back to it because it has helped me become who I am today. David Benner. David Benner. Oh, man. I have read that one at least seven or eight times at this point. It's super quick read, but it just hit me at a time when I was really wrestling with identity and trying to figure out this whole experiencing God thing. And he just breaks it down so beautifully, but needed to read it a few times too <laughs> to get, get it. Okay. Now, John Mark, uh, as a first time guest on this podcast, the purpose of this podcast is to talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day. And so we've been asking every guest this set of questions for the last hundred bajillion episodes. And it is this, this is the question. If the gospel is, I am more loved than I imagine, and yet more sinful than I believe, a little shout out Tim Keller. When was the gospel first good news for you and how is it still? When was the gospel first good news for me? Yeah. You know, I think um, by the compassion of God, I grew up around the gospel. And so I don't have a like first exposure memory, which I'm grateful for, you know? Yeah. Um, I think my grappling with the gospel came later once I began to explore what the gospel is. You know, I don't think most American Christians realize that gospel um, is not a common denominator for most American Christians. There are multiple different kind of understandings of what the gospel is and debate and disagreement, you know, ironically. And it's an important debate to really press into because how you define the gospel will in many ways define how you follow Jesus or what you even understand that to be. So I think my um, my real kind of awakening of the gospel was not as a child where I grew up around it, but was much later when I began to realize that there was some dissonance between the gospel as it had been kind of handed down and preached to me through mm -hmm. evangelicalism and the gospel that I discovered on the lips of Jesus yeah. and of Paul and of the early church fathers and mothers which was not really just about me. It was about the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of God coming, about the availability of the kingdom to all, mm. you know? And um, so, yeah, that, I think that for me was really challenging, you know? And um, because I think how the gospel has been explained for many people is not necessarily untrue. Um, like, you know, Scott McKnight, I don't know if you've read his little book, The King Jesus Gospel, has a mm -hmm. loving critique of kind of the reformed gospel. And he basically says, I, I agree in justification for by grace you have been saved. I just don't think that's the gospel. That's mm -hmm. the method of salvation. The gospel as defined by Jesus was the kingdom of God is at hand. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so there's a, and as defined by the four gospel writers, you know, you have the gospel according to Matthew. And that's referring to the entire book of Matthew is the gospel. And that's really interesting. So there's some fascinating stuff there to chase down. Mm. Already what you're saying is is so challenging to 
culture today, which is so about ourself and staring at our own yes. reflection. So for even for you to say, like, it's about the kingdom of God at hand, which you're, that's not new to you. And that's repeating. Um, it just flips our whole world upside down. And I'm sure some of the seeds of what you just said are planted in your book, which was really beautiful. And I'm not going to lie. It was very timely for me this weekend. We <laughs> released our first book like a week and a half ago and we're on Congratulations. the inter- Thanks. It's a birth of a sort. Um, and we're on the like interview train and I have felt fragmented and I so appreciated the richness of what you said. So I'm just going to toss to you first. Uh, just why did you write that? Why did you start writing this book about um, the ruthless elimination of hurry that spoke to me today and right now? <laughs> but why mm-hmm. did it, why did it need to come from your soul? You know, uh, there's David Brooks, who's one of my favorite writers. You know, has this great saying about how he's always been trying to write himself into a better life. Who's that? And there's there's something about that, you know. And you have to live something before you can write it. But sometimes in in that process, you can take something that God's been stirring up in you and let it sink deeper into your body, you know? So I think, um, you know, like most um, deep life callings, mine came out of pain and failure, you know, came out of a moment about a little less than a decade ago where I was just kind of in the midst of an early, early midlife crisis slash potential nervous breakdown, just... Um, a level of stress. We had planted church when I was in my early 20s, and it had grown by about a thousand people a year for, I don't know, seven years straight or so. And I found myself just in this exhausting life, just almost um, success had become failure. Mm -hmm. And the external trappings of my life were all fine. But the internal trappings, not just of like how I was doing emotionally or spiritually, which was dismal, but even relationally, as I was beginning to, you know, you can't love well, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, kind of emotionally healthy spirituality and the place of rest and slowing down and being present to yourself in the moment. And, you know, a lot of people just, we instantly go to kind of the narcissistic interpretation of that, like, oh, so I can just feel more relaxed and not so stressed out. And I don't think the apostle Paul or Jesus would, would I think they would, we, they would smirk at that one, you know? Really, the main point is be, is to love because the great command is to love God as well your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And exhausted, stressed out, distracted, on edge people are rarely, if ever, loving people mm-hmm. who are compassionate and attentive and present to the moment. So I just hit this spot where I was kind of succeeding as a pastor and failing as a disciple of Jesus and just as a human soul. And there was no like, you know, colossal, there's no scandal to report or anything like that. Right. But um, my marriage was just a constant bickering. My family was just getting the, the fumes of my leftover emotional life. I was an absolute workaholic. My emotional well-being was completely wrapped up in my work in really unhealthy ways. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I just hit this kind of breaking point. I knew I could not keep living this way without long-term kind of repercussions for my soul and my most closest relational life. And that's when I came across Dallas Willard saying, he had this beautiful, comes from a conversation with a mentee of his, and he, he had this beautiful saying to another pastor who had been completely stressed out. He just said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. 
which that alone was fascinating for me to think about. If I were to make a list of like the great challenges and threats to, you know, my faith in the secular kind of Western world, I don't think Hurry would have even made the top 10 or even made the list, much less the top spot. But in his mind, Hurry was the great, the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Mm. And then he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate Hurry from your life. And that just struck a very deep chord in my soul. And I began to really experiment with that, move toward that, began to make some really radical changes in my life, um, including kind of resigning and radically kind of overhauling my life. And uh, I've just been trying to work that out for the last eight mm. years or so. And I'm definitely still much, it's a work in progress, you know, Ugh. but I um, feel like a very different person than I once was. I love that. So you just referred to it, and, and I wrote the line down as I was reading your book, just that success might turn out to look a lot like failure. And, and maybe I, I misread it, but I thought it was you were kind of referring to that season where you're like, okay, I've got to quit my job-ish, you know, i got to re, rebrand essentially and go smaller here. <laughs> and so it looked, it, it looked like failure to you. But I've heard that sort of phrasing from a lot of, quote unquote, successful people and they take a risk and then it looks like they're going to fail, but then they don't. And then they write the book about how they didn't actually fail. And so how would you speak to the person though? Who's like, no, I like actually failed. Like I, is this success? Like, can you, can you speak to me who like, I'm living in obscurity. I just did a big risk and it totally didn't pay off. Can you speak to them? Yeah, well, I mean, I think for all of us, one of the most important tasks, especially of our 20s and our 30s, is really, really all of our life, is defining our metrics for success. Ooh, snap. You know, that's the Stephen Covey, like, you know, seven ha habits of highly effective people. He has that exercise, you know, where you write your eulogy. And the earlier, the better. You write what you want said about you at your death. And, and that's just an exercise in trying to discern what are the metrics of a life well-lived or poorly lived. Mm. And otherwise, if you don't go through that exercise, you just assume the metrics of our culture. And the metrics of our culture, it is a meritocracy for better or for worse. It is, you know, um, the gospel of upward mobility, as my therapist likes to call it. Mm. You know what I mean? It's this just kind of onward and upward, more money, more success, more prosperity, more square footage, more, more, whatever it is. And each each demographic will define it very differently. You know what I mean? So a kind of middle-class suburban familial, you know, thing might go one way. A New York kind of hard-driving careerist, Wall Street kind of person might do it another way. A kind of artistic, you know, urbanite might do it another way, like an athlete or an outdoors person. Like we all have our own definitions, but the common denominator is this kind of gospel of upward mobility. And the great tragedy of Western life is it's a lie. Nobody, even the most successful, nobody just keeps climbing the mountain, right? At some point you face suffering, pain, failure, rejection, mistakes, you know, regret. And, you know, often we don't see it in the people we lionize, but that's branding. That's mm. not because it's not there. You know, mm. that's the, the curation of Instagram, not because they somehow you know, got around the pain of the human condition. So the first thing I would say to somebody who feels like a failure is I would say, what are your metrics for success? Like where, what are you measuring that failure against? Is it a careers measure? Is it a financial number? Is it a, I thought I would have this, that, or the other? Is it I thought I would be happy? 
And then is that a realistic, um, you know, is that a realistic plumb line to measure against? And then the second thing I would say is maybe that's the great gift of your life because all people will find themselves at a place in life where they feel like they have failed mm -hmm. and they feel like what they wanted has not and will never likely come to pass. Everyone will get there. It's a question of when, not if. And really, you could argue that the great task of living and really the best part of the spiritual journey itself actually begins on the other side of failure. And that's where most people make their greatest contribution from. It's where most people finally integrate to their self. It's where most people really discover God. It's where, I mean, where did Jesus find his greatest contribution? At the cross, mm -hmm. at the end, at the failure of his ministry as it was perceived by others. And so, you know, that's the great trend, uh, get back to the gospel, you know, the great tragedy of the kind of Protestant reformed gospel is there's a hyper emphasis on the cross, which is beautiful, but the theology of the cross is transactional more than it is transformative, mm -hmm. meaning in reformed theology or evangelical theology, the cross is something that Jesus did for us, which I agree with, but in more historic theology, it's also something that we do with him. Mm. Mm. This is Paul's theology of, I have been crucified mm -hmm. with Christ. Therefore it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. For Paul, Christ did not die so that we don't have to. Christ died to show us how to die. Mm -hmm. And the passion of Christ, and this again is, is still an emphasis in Catholic doctrine, but in the kind of messy divorce between Protestants and Catholics, like it's something that I think Protestants as a whole have really lost sight of. And I'm not questioning the unique atonement work of Jesus for, you know, the forgiveness of sins. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Jesus called to pick up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. So the cross, again, that's just blatant language. Jesus is going to the cross to show us the way of death that is followed by life. Mm -hmm. And so really spiritual life begins at the cross. And, you know, we sentimentalize that into this like Christian cliche, but in real life, what that often means is when you feel like a failure and meeting God in your passion. Beautiful. I thought I threw you a hard question, but you just like knocked it right out of the park, homie. Oh. <laughs> so, okay. In our 20 to 40s, but maybe especially teens to 30 somethings, we're a little right. obsessed with like being famous and like that is, you know, I was listening to some commentary recently, like back in the day, nineties, like selling out was the worst. Now you want to sell out. Like you want right. to be branded. You want to as young as possible, as young as <laughs> let's do Bieber 2.0. Will you pay me for my Instagram? Post? Exactly. Yes. So why do you think that is at, at, then at the same time in their selling out, you see them saying, I'm so anxious. I'm so depressed. And I don't doubt uh, that. Yeah. So help, can you help package that a little bit? Why are we selling our souls and gaining the world? I'm not trying to lead you, but here I just started to lead. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, gosh, there's a lot we could explore there. So I don't, I don't, I won't get this all in one little spiel, but you know, first off, I think the older I get, the, the, the more I want to approach a question with grace and say, all right, what, what is maybe underneath that desire for I want to be famous or I want to make money or I want to sell out or I want to get, you know, get notoriety. 
And I think a gracious reading of that would be underneath that there's a healthy thing that happens in the first half of life. And I'm a big believer in like um, psychological development and stage theory and spiritual formation and kind of bringing together some of the kind of first half, second half of life, where there's different ways to piece it into the spiritual journey. And this, of course, goes all the way back to the church fathers and mothers who have the three ways of illumination, awakening, illumination, purgation, union. And this was like the dom as a stage theory, you know? So I think it's helpful to think about the spiritual journey over the arc of a life. And what are your, you know, high school? And like, I just sat with my son, I'm doing a, you know, we call it the primal path. That's a three-year initiation, right? To manhood. And last week we did, and this is a generalization and it's a male version but we did like just a basic life arc. So your high school years are about exploring, college years are about learning, 20s are about growing, 30s are about editing, 40s are about mastering, 50s are about harvesting, 60s are about guiding, 70s are about imparting, 80s are about savoring, 90s are about preparing, right? So just giving him a life arc, something to kind of plot his life story onto. All that to say, in much simpler terms, if you just want to go kind of first half of life, second half of life, there is something that happens beginning at adolescence and from kind of there to middle age. And I won't define middle age by a year, but kind of that spot where you're you're in your vocation, whatever that is, you're in the relational container of your life. If that's singleness in community or that's a marriage or that you have four kids or whatever, you're in your place or whatever. And the weight and the burden and even the drudgery of the long obedience in the direction, the same direction has settled on your shoulders. And life no longer feels like upward mobility. It feels like just, all right, one more diaper, one more, you know, driving to soccer practice, one more meeting, one more year, you know, just you start to feel that long kind of run through the middle years of life in, in between puberty and that. What's happening, I think, in human development and in the spiritual journey, what God's like put even as sexuality awakens in a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, is you're being driven away from your home, your mom and your dad. This is Genesis 2, like a man shall mm -hmm. leave his father and mother and be united as wife. And you're searching for a home. You're searching for your own home. Mm -hmm. So you're leaving home and you're beginning to search for your own home that will eventually, you know, in the American kind of dream will be like, you got your little house with the picket fence and your two kids or whatever. Of course, that's not, that's true for less than most people, but you, you get the stereotype yeah. there. And what's happening there is I think there's a drive to discover who you are and what God made you to do and what God's call on your life is and who your people will be and who will love you and who will be your spouse, your partner, your community, your friends, who will hold you and accept you and how will you navigate the way and who will be your mentor, who will be your guide and where will you end up and what will you do? These are the questions that fuel those kind of teenage and 20 something years of life. And these are good questions. The problem is in our hyper individualistic, and hyper-secular culture, and more and more in a culture that defines itself by a, a, a definition of freedom that is anti any form of external authority. The, the downside to that is an identity and a calling are no longer given to you. You have to discover one, you have to make one for yourself, and then you have to update, and really you have to perform it, which is where all the anxiety and the showmanship comes from. So mm. the upside to a traditional culture is you don't have an existential crisis over your gender, over your role in your marriage, over what you should do with your life. If you're a woman, you're gonna be a mom. If you're a man, you're gonna go out and work in the fields. If your families are blacksmiths, you're gonna become a blacksmith. 
if you're a Christian, you're going to be a Christian. So the upside to that is you have very little anxiety. You, you don't have existential angst. You don't wonder, am I doing the right thing? Is this God's call in my life? Should I be here? Should I be there? You don't even ask these questions. The downside is it can be really suffocating for certain types of people. For people that it works well for, it's beautiful. But for other type of people who maybe don't fit the mold or don't fit into that gender role or want to do something else, it can be really suffocating and stifling. So the West is basically this colossal reaction, I would argue, overreaction against traditional authority and external forms of authority, be that God or culture or your gender or the family or gender roles or whatever it is. And in the West, basically, your life is this blank slate and you're encouraged. Oh, well, it's not actually a blank slate, but the Western view of life is just a blank slate. That's part of the dissonance is life actually isn't like that. But mm -hmm. it's this blank slate. And so go and invent yourself, be yourself, be true to yourself. I mean, think of all the slogans of our culture. Be true to yourself. You do you. Speak your truth. Find your path. Do what's in your heart. Do what makes you happy. This is all the propaganda of the Western world. Now, the upside to that is you're not stifled. Like I, if my dad was a blacksmith, I have no desire to be a blacksmith. This does not sound fun to me at all. And so I can say, oh, man, what I would love to be as a writer. How, is there any way I could do that? What if I were to devote myself to that craft? Could I ever make a living as a writer, you know, or a spiritual director or whatever it is that's in my heart? The downside is it's an incredibly fragile identity because mm -hmm. it's performative. Right. And because you chose it. So you have conscience, constant anxiety that you're maybe not living into the right identity, maybe not living into the right call, and all it takes is one mistake, one wrong post, and everything is comparative. It's uh, And it's basically career-based and lifestyle-based rather than responsibility and love-based. Mm. So in the old metrics, you knew if you were a good person, if you were faithful to your spouse and you raised your children well, and you worked hard that day. In the new metrics, you know if you're a good person, so to speak, based on how many Instagram followers you have, how cool you are, how beautiful you are, how successful you are, how perfect you are, whether or not you ever make any mistakes in public. These are brutal, punishing metrics that produce massive anxiety, fear, and existential angst in people, mm -hmm. which is why I think much of the gospel for millennials and Gen Z going forward will be a better way to do identity because the new testament in particular the writer paul uses the gospel to do some really sophisticated identity work where your identity is not how many followers you have on instagram or what your career is or how you dress or your political affiliation or how creative or artistic you are your identity is who you are loved by and it's the role that you play in the family of god and this is a radical this i think that is radically good news for a generation that's anxious about its identity Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, John Mark, let's go real life. How okay. do you do that in real life? Because here, here I am, you know, for, for a publisher to even notice Matt and I with this story to be told, we have to have X number mm -hmm. of followers, X number of, you know, videos, blah, 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 blah. There are standards. So it's like, I, I have railed against, you know, this essential popularity contest. And I'm like, if the Holy Spirit wants to get this message out, he's just going to do it. But then I'm like, well, Paul actually had to put words to paper. Like he had to get, and this is the lingua franca. This is the language of the day. We have to use the language. So how do you, John Mark, in real life, live in that tension of my identity is in Jesus Christ, 
He's given me these words to say, though, and I got to get them out to the public. So I have to use these stinking social media. That's a total addiction game. Like, how do you do that? Yeah. Gosh, that's a great question. In all honesty, I'm, I'm really questioning whether or not we should. So I'm in a year long kind of discernment process thinking about deleting all of my social media accounts. I haven't decided yet. It, it really is a conundrum. Yeah. Um, you know, for people like yourself, you know, or myself who are writers or, you know, speakers, you know, I think one easy way is to begin to view it as um, work, not as identity. Right. And so and, and this will rub some people the wrong way. But, um, you know, social media is personal marketing and to try to pretend it's not, you know, is and no, I'm not saying it is that for everybody. Some people aren't trying to do anything with their social media yeah. other than just see what their sisters, what their niece and nephew are doing that day. That's great. That's that's the kind of social media that I actually don't have a problem with. <laughs> the fun type. <laughs> yeah. If it was all like private and it was just family members and close friends, I would be like, oh, this is great. This is fun. I can see what my cute little niece is doing who lives four hours away. You know what I mean? That right. would be wonderful. And I'd go on every day to see the pictures. But, you know, by the way, there, there is something called that. It's um, uh, what's the name? My wife uses the app Marco Polo. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. So. And, and that's where a lot of people are opting out of the traditional social media things and going for more targeted things like Marco Polo or Visco or things that aren't based around addiction and performance and competition. So honestly, for most people, I think I would just say get off social media and limit your internet intake and um, just choose to live a very different life. Why expose yourself to all that? Mm. For those that, that are in a public role and therefore it is kind of the town square and so you have to have some kind of a public thing first off i would say is that true and that's what i'm really questioning right now and then the other thing i would say is just view it as work you know what i mean so i'm not trying to get an identity through it or i don't post that much i keep the world is so full of noise last thing i want to do is add a bunch more to it and um so view it as you know hey here's something i did if you're interested in it and then find the mediums that aren't corrupted by Silicon Valley's model. So, for example, the podcast that we're doing right now is one of the best possible digital mediums that has not been corrupted. Of course, right. I mean, human sin corrupts everything, but this has not been corrupted by the, the you know, what Jerron Lanier and his book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Social Media, your social media accounts right now, which is a great book. You should read it. Mm -hmm. um, he calls it the bummer model, you know, which is basically the kind of harvester data and steal your attention through addiction kind of model of Silicon Valley. Podcast is not that. And so this is a long form thing. It requires thoughtfulness. It requires attention, something you can do while you're driving or on your run. It's a beautiful medium. And so I don't know, I, I would rather, for me, the ends never justify the means. And so I never want to do anything that feels icky to me, you know, in mm -hmm. order to do this big thing that I think God's put in my heart. I would mm -hmm. rather fail at the big thing than, you know, um, than fail in kind of my integrity. So I don't know, yeah. I guess that's a long way of saying it's an open question for me. What are your thoughts? Like, where are you at right now? You just released a book, you're doing a podcast, which is beautiful, but I, where are you at in your processing? I think I'm with you on the viewing it as work. And that's not to say I haven't had genuine like heart to heart conversations and meetings of people on there. But I, I see it as uh, if I want to have a real conversation with someone, even someone I meet on social media, I move it to, hey, can you email me this? 
And then I'll try and even set up a video. So it's not even, or a phone call because to do that life on life, like you can see essence of it, but I, I try as soon as I can. And if I have the time and the spirit moving, I try and move it to a different medium pretty quickly. Yes. hundred percent. Okay. I have to talk about this list because it's bugging me, John Mark. I can't get it out of my head because it convicted me. (laughs) So you list a bunch of signs uh, of like basically how to know when you're wrecked by hurry and stress. (laughs) They annoyed me because they kept coming up into my face yesterday. So you have about 10 of them, but three of them I want to highlight and feel free to throw a few more in. But if you can just unpack a little bit, the signs to know, like, yeah, you got to step back and start evaluating your hyped up life. Uh, But you said irritability, emotional numbness. uh, You don't have the capacity to feel another's pain or your own pain. Ooh. And lack of care for your body. For some reason, those three, those are signs for me when I'm snappy at my kids or when I, and actually said this to Matt before I started reading your book, my husband, Matt, I said, Matt, I'm in a danger zone of stress because people are coming to me with their pain and I just don't care. So that's sad. Right. And then when I'm not running, I'm a runner. That's another sign because that's a very spiritual exercise and actual exercise for me. So could you talk a little bit about those three in particular and maybe throw a few others in that are signs for you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, first off, you know, Ruth Haley Barton has this great kind of um, spectrum of like good tired to dangerous tired. Yep. Yeah, we've there's, there's, a, there's a good tired that you should feel at the end of the day or at the end of the week before Sabbath where you're just tired and you want to sleep and you want to just, you know, winter sit by the fire or in summer, you know, sit outside and have a cup of iced coffee or whatever. There's a good, just kind of, you're tired and that's a good thing. Life is hard. Life is full of suffering and we are made to contribute, to give output, to serve other people beyond ourselves. And, and that can just, that just is a sign from your body to go to sleep or take a Sabbath, you know, or spend a little time in prayer. Then there's dangerous tired where you've gone past your emotional, mental, spiritual limits, and you are now vulnerable to sin, to temptation, to the enemy, to your flesh inside, to all sorts of things. You're at that point, you're most vulnerable to, to, to stumble. And so, yeah, those are three signs. Irritability, just meaning you, you are quick to, and again, this will show up very different in each personality. And based on your personality, you will have, you know, some of these, this, I think there's 10 in the book that, you gravitate more for sure. For me, it's irritability. It's the first sign. I'll snap at my kids or I will be, you know, curt with my wife or I'll be impatient. And again, don't look at like, you know, your, how you treat your boss or how you treat your barista or how you treat some, you know, cool person you're flirting with or whatever. Look at people that your kind of psychological guard is down with. So if you have a family, look at how you treat your spouse and your children. If you have a roommate, how do you treat your roommate? If you have extended family, how do you treat your mom or your sister or your brother or whatever? You know, people that you feel safe with, they're going to give you an accurate barometer of, you know, of where that where that metric is for your irritability. But yeah, just quick to snap, to get mad, to get frustrated or impatient or write people off. Um, the other one, emotional numbing, just means it's interesting. The tireder we get, and this will show up again, different for different personalities, but our range of emotions begins to restrict, and we mostly feel anger and anxiety. Mm. And the the broader emotions, 
we lose capacity for the emotion of gratitude. Gratitude is a, is a practice, but it's also an emotion. Mm -hmm. The emotion of wonder, the emotion of awe, the emotion of mystery, the emotion of peace, the emotion of transcendence, the emotion of, of joy. We lose even the emotion of compassion or empathy or kind of the ability to even lament. We, we, we lose these capacities. It's like we have this wide kind of arsenal of emotional life that's beautiful and it's constricted down to just I'm stressed and I'm mad all mm. the time, you know, and again, this will look different for different personalities. And then, yeah, I'm not caring for your body, like the basic things that we need, you know, a minimum of eight hours sleep a night for most of us and some form of daily exercise, whether that's a run or walking your dog around the block or whatever. And cooking your own food and drinking water and having some margin. I would count that even as a bodily exercise, just some time to just breathe, unscheduled time to just sit and look out the window or sit by the fire or have an interruption or chat to a friend who's having a hard day. Mm. So these are some of the first things. If those things are present in your life, you're just, you're irritable, you are feeling lots of anxiety and anger and not a lot of the other emotions and you're maybe not caring for your body and you don't have the margin in your life. These are some, some clear kind of warning signs in the dashboard of your emotional life that, hey, you are most likely moving past the pace of Jesus and past the pace of love mm. through your life. So guys, if you want to get equally annoyed and convicted, <laughs> pick up this book and read these 10 things. I think I got one more question for you because I, I need to dig in and fight this lie in my life, but I don't think it's just me that has to fight this lie. Uh, but I can wrestle with it's FOMO-OGW. And by that, it's fear of missing out on God's will. And I have this, oh. you know, so again, we're in this like, interview train and you're, you're still on it from your book, you know? And so I, we're getting a lot of interview requests and et cetera, and it's great. And I'm like, okay, I have to say yes to everything. Otherwise I'm going to miss out on God's will. And then there's this other part of me that's like, but you're tired. And also your kids and also these lot things that John Mark said that you are signs of stress. But I just wrestle with that, that I'm going to miss out on God's will. Speak to the lie inside of me and others who feel like me that, um, really because it's this it's like I should be stressed and life should be kind of terrible in order for it to equal sign be God's will like it should be real hard and bad that means you're actually in God's will so can you speak to that lie right. yeah well I don't think you'd get that from the life of Jesus you know I mean <laughs> God's will often does involve suffering and pain and self-sacrifice God's will is not always we're just like super happy and thriving and everything is awesome you know so this basically calls for discernment. It's much more complex than just if I'm stressed and life is hard, I must not be in God's will. Tell that to Paul as he was in prison or being right. stoned or sleepless or up day and night and fasting and prayer. You know, I think the call really is to discernment. You know, I, for me, the paradigmatic story is Jesus in Mark chapter one, where he has this long marathon day at the synagogue. He's healing people late until the evening. And then, you know, we read that line very early the next morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he went off to a solitary place and there he prayed. Mm -hmm. And um, and then what's really, that's interesting enough that he chooses to immediately go away into solitude. But then what's amazing is after that, the disciples come and say, hey, everybody is looking for you, you know, and um, people want you, they want you to do this, that, the other. 
And he says, basically says, no, for this reason I have come to go preach the gospel in the other towns and villages. And he basically says no to their invitation because he has a clarion sense of what he's supposed to do next. And I think, you know, it's basic math to just assume that Mark wants you to read that his clear, clear sense of call came out of his morning time of solitude. Yeah, that's it. And so, you know, again, life is complex. I don't want to reduce it to a formula. But if there was a simplistic formula, it would be spend regular time in silence and solitude discerning God's call in your life. And then go do that and say no to everything else and trust him that he'll take care of you, you know? Yeah. So whether that's a daily time or a weekly time, or you spend a monthly day in silence, solitude, however you parse it or all of the above, which is ideal, you know, the, like spend time in silent prayer, hearing from the father, God, and like, I just ask the simplest question most mornings, God, what pleases you? Or you could just ask very simply, God, what are you calling me to do? And then just sit there with your mind open. And it doesn't mean that anything that comes into your mind will be the voice of God. But you'll learn to discern your own imagination and your own thoughts and your own distraction from the deposit of the spirit into your mind and your imagination. You will begin to learn. You always test it against scripture. You always test it in community. You always give it time. But just open your mind and say, God, what are you calling me to do? You know, and sometimes it'll be broad. Sometimes it'll be very specific. And then you can just breathe a sigh of relief and say, all right, I'm not called to do that for today or this week or this season. And maybe God will say, I'm calling you to two crazy months of your life to launch this book. And I want you to say yes to every single person that I'll talk to you about it. And then take, you know, two weeks of vacation after it's over, you know, mm -hmm. maybe, or maybe God will say, no, I'm calling you to no more than one podcast a day or what I have no mm -hmm. idea what God will say to you, yep. but have that time, have that moment. You have to spend time in silence and in solitude. If you don't, your soul will be torn apart and you will be sucked in to the tyranny of the kingdom of noise that is our world and constant pressure and demands. And this is especially true, you know, for those of you in any kind of a public role, Elton Trueblood had that great line, the more public a person is, the more they have to learn how to hide. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, do you see that very much in the life of Jesus? The more in demand he became, the more he would slip away to silence, to pray, to get a clear sense of call. Mm. And then he could say no, and he could go to Jerusalem or he could go to the other, whatever God had put before him. Dang, John Mark, I feel like this conversation was for me, but I know that not just me, our listeners were well, really uh, received a lot from this and I get why they were so excited to have you on because uh, you are a gift to the church and it's because you're seeking him. He's all over you. Well, it's very gracious of you. Very kind. Just doing my best like the rest of us, you know, and nobody has it down. Nobody is living their best life now. No. Nobody has it all perfect. <laughs> you know, we're all we're all human and fragile and emotional and we're a slip in and out of balance. And, you know, emotional health can become this idealistic kind of tyrant. If you think, oh, yeah. out there's this life where I'm just never stressed and I'm I'm never hurried and I'm always right in the center of God's will and I never feel sad. I just am always loving and kind <laughs> and I get eight and a half hours sleep every single night and yeah. I go for a perfect run and I always like that. That's a myth. That's not real life. Real yeah. life is 
suffering and pain and joy and gratitude and human fragility and sin and we make mistakes and we feel like a failure one day and by the next day we're like no i was in a funk i'm fine you know like we're human <laughs> actually and, JK we're about all that. and yeah. we're contradictory and the sooner we can accept that and celebrate the love of god over us just as we are in all of our mess yeah the sooner we can actually start to become all that god is calling us to become amen Thank you for your voice and your book and your life. Very grateful to be on. Thanks for having me. Guys, I mean, come on. Go go check out his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And while you're there, why don't you give us a, a review of this podcast? Do you like this podcast? Does it mean something to you? Because you guys tell me about it in emails and messages. It would mean a lot if you found us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and you drop a review. Five stars would be awesome. But just honestly, in an honest review with however many stars you think we deserve, that would mean a lot. Guys, I have a question of the week for next week. Because Thanksgiving is next week here in the United States. What's your favorite big holiday meal leftover mashup? I think we've asked this one before, but I just like to hear it again. We got a bunch of new listeners. Uh, turkey mashed potato sandwich. Carbon, carbon, carbon turkey. Cranberry pumpkin pie pancakes. I don't know. I just started like pushing, putting things together and figured sandwich and pancake was a good idea. But I want to hear. I want to hear what you guys do. And if you're not in the United States, you can tell us what you do. We want to hear from you. Thanks again to John Mark Comer and for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast. We will see you next week.